Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Every now and again here on the podcast, we like to share a peek behind the curtain to share some of our members-only content that we make here at The Fool. Back on June 11th, Jason Hall and I sat down once again with Jacob Goldstein, host of NPR's Planet Money and author of the book Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, for a wide-ranging discussion on cryptocurrency, inflation, the economy, and more. Uh, This conversation first aired for Discovery members back in June, and we're excited to bring it to you today. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Yeah, just a big change. How has the role of cryptocurrency changed in in the past month with the emergence of of Bitcoin, uh, you know, on, on company balance sheets or, or Dogecoin, uh, maybe increasingly on company balance sheets. What do you make of this? I mean, it's mysterious ultimately to me still, I think, right? Like if I look you're, at- You're the, not the only one. You're <laughs> right? Like you, like the Tesla thing is kind of perfect, right? It's like, we're going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. You can use Bitcoin to buy Teslas. Oh, wait, actually, Bitcoin's bad for the environment and Tesla's supposed to be good for the environment. So you can't use it to buy Teslas, but we're going to keep the Bitcoin anyways. It's like, what's the what's the coherent story I'm supposed to extract from that? Like, I don't know. And that to me is sort of where I land, right? I have to say, I don't have some like grand theory of cryptocurrency that explains it all. The, The big puzzle to me still with cryptocurrency is like, when are we going to see the killer app, right? Like it is this interesting technology that's clearly really clever, really solves a lot of technical problems. And yet, you know, Bitcoin was invented essentially in 2008. That's a long time ago in technological time, right? About the same time as the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And its price has gone bananas in the last few uh, months, right? It went way up, it came back down some, it's still very high. But like, what is the killer app? I mean, so far, I guess the killer app is ransomware, right? Like, let's be honest. Ooh, uh, right. If we th- think about what's been happening, like it's been ransomware for a long time, but just in the last few months since we talked last, uh, there was the Colonial Pipeline hack. Uh, there was the JBS, right? That meat company hack. And so it's mm-hmm. like, what is Bitcoin really good for? Oh, right. It's really good for crime, which we've right. kind of known all along, but it's it's become more salient. Well, the interesting well, thing too, you're talking about about those two things, very recently, the with the Colonial Pipeline, the FBI has announced that they were able to to recover a substantial amount of that money um, when, and it happened when the the perpetrators of the crime actually turned it into money. Right? It's when that transition they were able to follow the large blockchain transactions. So my question for you, because your book, this is a great line from your book, is is money is something that enough people believe is money. Is to paraphrase you. Are we there? With Bitcoin, you mean? Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, outside of El Salvador, because they clearly say, yes, it is. They they want it to be. Yeah, which is also interesting. And we can talk about that, too. I mean, you know, no would be my shortest answer to that question. Right. Uh, you, you know, uh, it's useful to think about money not in such a binary way, right? Like, you know, dollar bills are money. Fine. Your money in a checking account is money, but it didn't used to be as much money. You know, it didn't used to be as money-ish as it is now, right? If you go back a hundred years, when the government didn't guarantee everybody's money in a checking account, when you put your money in the bank, you were lending it to the bank, and if the bank went out of business, you didn't get your money back. So it was more like a loan to the bank. 
similarly with Bitcoin, it's certainly money-ish. It certainly could be money, but like I, well, I mean, I once in 2011, I bought a falafel sandwich and a smoothie with Bitcoin. Uh, so I once bought something with it, but of course, if I'd have Most not bought it and helped the ever $100,000 as of earlier this year, right? Which speaks to the non-moneyness, right? A thing where you feel like a chump for spending it is kind of like not money, right? Like you don't say, oh, if only I wouldn't have spent that 20 bucks then. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's it is kind of interesting too. It also reminds me, I think there was a line in your book that was like, as soon as you need like shells to get married or, or things like that, people start hoarding it. So even, so if we all decide it was money, isn't that, I mean, in a way, in that kind of interstitial period, wouldn't that behavior kind of would manifest, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. So again, it's kind—it's not as, money is not as binary as we usually think, right? And so a government accepting something in taxes, that's another classic sign that a thing is money, right? Because then it's like, well, I'm going to have to pay my taxes, so I might as well, you know, get some Bitcoin. I might as well accept Bitcoin in payment for my services. Um, the the volatility of Bitcoin's price, I think, goes against its moneyness, right? The idea that a dollar is going to buy twice as much stuff next week or half as much stuff next week suggests that it's not working well as money, right? The notion that I'm going to get a bunch of dollars so that in a year I can buy a bunch more stuff with the same amount of dollars, like that's not how money works. And when people say money is a store of value, that's not what they mean. And when people say Bitcoin is a store of value, what they mean, I think, is Bitcoin is a speculative asset, right? It's an asset class. And that seems valid, right? People compare it to gold. Although gold is weird, right? Like gold is, it's a weird asset. It doesn't throw off a stream of income. It's this archaic thing that has value for unclear reasons. And like Bitcoin as better gold is, seems like the best Bitcoin story I know. Yeah, and, and I think to, to your point of it's like, it's in this weird role right now. I remember, you know, just... Uh, in the in recent weeks, there was the Bitcoin conference in Miami, and I think at one point they were handing out a prize, and it said you could win X dollars worth of Bitcoin. And obviously, you recognize the irony of this: a, a a conference about how Bitcoin is the is the future of currency, pricing their prize in dollars. Yeah, what? How do you feel about this weird place Bitcoin is in, and just crypto in general? Yeah, I mean, to me, still the interesting question, like. People compare it to the early days of the internet, right? Or of the web. And like that to me seems like an interesting comparison. And so then the question becomes, what is the first killer app, right? And, and that I think takes us beyond Bitcoin to crypto more generally. And, you know, I think there's a good case that Ethereum and things sort of built around uh, Ethereum uh, are more likely to be useful, you know, smart contracts and that sort of thing. I mean, there are things that on their face seem like natural fits for Bitcoin, like remittances, right? Workers sending money back to their home country. And that, you know, to return to the El Salvador thing, uh, a huge part of El Salvador's GDP comes from workers who come, you know, largely to America and send money home. And that is an industry, right? Western Union, that kind of thing, where there are very high fees. And so if uh, you could use Bitcoin or some other currency to make remittances cheaper for, you know, these people who are putting themselves at risk and traveling and working and trying to support their families, like, that's great. Like, that's finance doing what it's supposed to do, you know, making life better for ordinary people uh, who are not trying to get rich in some uh, crypto casino, but rather just trying to live their lives. And so that's like the thing I really want to see in crypto is just some simple, boring, useful thing 
that helps ordinary people. And it's striking to me that we still have not seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is uh, striking. It, it's one of these tough things because I think you talk about this in the book of, you know, money is trust and all these people putting their their trust in Bitcoin, I think, as, as a future currency, more and more folks. But the, it, its ability to perform that role, right? If you have a 2% margin business and you, this, is a, this is a currency that fluctuates 10% a day, I don't know how you run a business on that. Um, but yet, more and more people are tr- putting trust in this. It's just it's a, it's a weird place to be. And I guess another way to go from that is what does that say about trust in things like the U.S. dollar or trust in things like uh, other currencies around the world? Yeah, well, I mean, a few things. You mentioned, you know, if you run a low margin business, what does the volatility of Bitcoin mean for you? I mean, there is a universe where Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency is just the pipes, right? Where you, the business person, are still getting paid in dollars, uh, but, you know, you're moving money around. Or in the case of remittances, you know, the, the worker, the El Salvadoran worker in the U.S. is getting paid in dollars, going to the crypto money transfer store on his phone or whatever. And the money is moving via crypto, but is, you know, dollars on either end. Like, that works fine. And you can reduce your exposure to volatility that way. So the volatility isn't inherently problematic. Um, In terms of trust more generally, I mean, you know, money as trust is is a big idea. And certainly fiat currency, you know, is clearly backed by nothing. And people use dollars because they assume that, uh, you know, I get paid in dollars because I assume I can buy my groceries in dollars and I can. And what we're really trusting when we trust the dollar is the U.S. government, right? We're trusting the American economy as a going concern. And people often say they don't trust the US government, but like everybody kind of does, right? I mean, if you are living in the dollar economy, you are you are uh, on the hook for what happens in America. Uh, I don't think cryptocurrency is much of a threat to the dollar now. I mean, it's interesting. We could talk about central bank digital currencies. That's another thing that I feel like just in the last few months, we've been hearing more about you know, um, just uh, this week, as we're talking, uh, this week, I believe, in the last few days, anyways, uh, there were uh, hearings in the Senate about a central bank digital currency in the US. Obviously, China has made a tremendous amount of progress with the central bank digital currency. And the basic idea of a central bank digital currency is sort of antithetical to crypto on a certain level, right? Because the origins of cryptocurrency, and like, this is a story I tell in the book, is like very libertarian. It's very like, we need money that is not uh, tied to the government. And it, that is, is is, it is the inverse of a government created digital asset, right? Yes, it's private and it's untraceable, right? Like the dream of these libertarians who were very clever and solved all these hard technical problems to essentially invent Bitcoin was let's have anonymous money that is digital and that has nothing to do with the government, right? right. And then cut to China creating a central bank digital currency being the farthest along. Like China is like the greatest surveillance state ever invented, right? Mm -hmm. And clearly part of the reason they're doing this is because it will allow them to track every transaction. You know, cash is inherently anonymous. If I give you a hundred dollar bill, nobody has to know about it, right? But if I send you a, a, you know, hundred dollars in central bank digital currency that is eminently trackable. So right. it's it's like the bizarro world version of crypto on a certain level. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to se- to see, you know, the the Fed announced that they were going to be doing some studies of this over the summer. So it's going to be really interesting to see what what comes out of that. I, I think one of the things that's uh, maybe you can weigh on too in terms of thinking about 
you know, those use cases, thinking about like the thesis that so many people that buy cryptocurrencies right now is the fact that it's going to go up in value. And again, like you said, that's very antithetical to what currencies are supposed to do as this predictable store of value. So thinking about a few things. So recently, here's a few things that have that have come out. So interactive interactive brokers, which is one of the larger low cost brokers, has announced that later this summer they're going to be allowing cryptocurrency trading. Uh, Coinbase recently went public, which is by far the dominant trader um, trading platform. It's it's just come out in the news that they have partnered with a small 401k provider, so that the for the 400 businesses or so that they do to allow for people to be able to buy crypto assets in their 401ks. So it, it's, it's interesting thinking about it in terms of money versus asset. Maybe that's kind of where we are now. But do you think it's going to continue to move forward? Do you think it's going to continue to proliferate? I mean, where, where do you see this in the, in the cycle of it being a thing at all? Well, so in terms of asset prices, let me say, I have no idea. So I don't know what it's going to do. I mean, it seems obvious that a lot of the movement now has nothing to do with is it money or is it this or is it that it's just here is this thing that is worth 10x or 100x what it was a year ago or a month ago i want to buy it in case it goes up another 10x right like a lot of it is just not that intellectually interesting which is i think why i mean one of the there's all these divisions within crypto world now like the ethereum people look down on the bitcoin people and all of the like serious thoughtful crypto people hate the Doge people, right? Like, because Dogecoin is clearly a joke and it went up a lot, right? So it makes like serious crypto look bad. Because if you're on the outside of crypto and you think it's a joke, you're like, look, this stupid joke coin just went up a thousand percent or whatever it was like, clearly it's all ridiculous. And if you're like, no, 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 but Ethereum and like smart contracts and dies and it was like, yeah, whatever. It's a dog meme world. So uh, there is this whole spectrum, right? I mean, I do still think that technology is quite clever, right? When you, you know, when you look at all of the hard problems it has solved, I, I believe that like blockchain could be useful. It's interesting that it's not useful yet, but like, I'm not going to say it's going to go away. Lots of people who are way smarter than I am and know more about it than I do really, I think, honestly believe in it and are not just, you know, trying to get rich quick. So it seems like it'll persist. It seems likely that people will figure out useful things to do with it. What I have no idea is like, what will the value of any of the coins be, right? And it's a strange kind of duality between like some potential set of future uses and then like the crypto casino, right? And like, there's all this weird like yield farming. There's just a huge amount of money churning around without anything really happening, right? I mean, to go back to another theme we were talking about last time, it's like this distinction between the real economy and finance, right? And like the point of finance is not just for people in finance to get rich, it's for finance to help you do things in the real world, to buy a house without having to save money for 30 years or whatever, right? Basically to move money around in time or to let you get some interest if you have money now and want more money later. And it's weird in crypto how like there's all this finance stuff, but it all, it never pokes out to the real world, right? It's just like crypto within crypto within crypto and you're lending your crypto to other people who are going to buy more crypto. And like, where is the actual world people doing things in this whole story? 
Yeah. So, so you mentioned like, yeah, the, 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 the Doge meme world. So I want to zoom out from crypto, maybe more to the broader world of finance, because Great. that mentality has moved into the GameStops of the world and the AMCs. And we're in this, this universe of what's going on on social media is infecting what's going on in the financial world. As someone who follows finance and how it intersects with, with real people, what do you make of it? I will say you used the word infecting, which is an interesting choice of words. Uh, I might say affecting. It's a more neutral choice. Uh, I mean, it is interesting. I, I, you know, I did a story about GameStop right when it was first popping uh, early this year and talked to a guy who made, I don't know what, I think a million or a few million dollars who was like just some guy, right? Like that's the amazing thing about this kind of lottery world. Um, I don't know. I mean, is it like, does it take all the air out of it if I say it's not that big of a deal? It's like a few stocks with relatively small market caps. I mean, I'll tell you my priors are like, I think the stock market is pretty efficient. And I know there's like a cartoonish efficient market hypothesis that people like to make fun of, but I don't mean that version. Obviously stock valuations move more than fundamentals would suggest. But I think like, the stock market works pretty well. And like the emergence of meme stocks is interesting, but it just seems like a kind of casino sideshow that's fun. Um, I mean, it's also interesting how much GameStop has gone back up, right? Like, and right. how it does seem to be turning into a real company. Like they're hiring people from Amazon and that guy from Chewy is the chairman of the board. So like, it would be a fun end of the story if like GameStop actually did pivot to be like a smart, online video game company that had huge revenues to justify its valuation. Like for, from a narrative standpoint, uh, that would be a fun outcome, right? Like, you know, rocket emoji, rocket emoji, diamond <laughs> hands. Right. <laughs> it's, you know, and looking, think, so let's think more broadly about what's, what's going on with money itself, right? So the, the money supply, the U.S. money supply has increased an enormous amount over Speaking the Speaking of year. to the moon, right? Dollars right. to the moon. Right, right. Um, but it, it, while that was happening initially, we didn't really see inflation or deflation or any of the things that, that a select group of economists and financial folks have been saying over the past decade is that you know, between deficits and increasing the money supply, eventually there's going to be repercussions. And we, we're just coming out of May as being the you know, like a decade, almost a decade and a half, the highest inflation month ever. Lumber prices are, you know, triple where they were. The I think the average home costs twenty five thousand dollars more to build than it did a year ago. Vehicles, there's there's all of these things happening. I'd just be curious to hear, you know, just your thoughts here. Yeah. So this is maybe the most interesting question to me right now, not as, as sexy as cryptocurrency, but like, I think more important. Um, so, you know, as you guys, I'm sure know already, the big whatever trillion dollar question is, to what extent is this inflation we're seeing now just some weird transitory uh, coming out of the strangest economic year in our lifetimes, the pandemic, the shutdown, the reopening, uh, and to what extent is it like a change in the inflation regime, right? Um, most people seem to think it's transitory, right? So the fact that year-over-year uh, -year inflation was, what was it, about 5%, right? The number that just came out. Uh, again, that's comparing 
you know, what happened uh, in May of 2021 to May of 2020. But May of 2020 was a super weird year, right? And so you're comparing prices for things like used cars in the middle of the biggest economic shutdown of our lifetimes to prices right now. So that's a weird comparison that we shouldn't infer too much from, right? So that's the, the transitory story. Now, the, the will it be a change from a low inflation regime to a high inflation regime is an interesting question. And one of, I think, the big insights of the last several years about how inflation works is a tremendous amount of inflation is driven by what people think inflation is going to be, right? Inflation expectations are sort of strangely a crucial driver of what inflation actually is. And part of the, the theory for why inflation stayed so low all through the teens was people expected it to, and therefore workers weren't demanding raises. Therefore, multi-year contracts didn't have big inflation hikes built in, right? So I think the uh, we're going to be in a high inflation regime story goes, well, people keep seeing 5%, they're going to expect high inflation, and that's going to drive high inflation. I'll say I was just talking to a forecaster this week, and she made a really interesting point in terms of like which of these is going to be. She thinks it's going to be transitory. And I'll say, I don't want to do false equivalents here. Like, it seems like most of the smart money, and if you look at like market-based, you know, 10-year break-evens, whatever, market-based uh, measures of inflation expectations, they are still quite low. I want to say that clearly, because I feel like in terms of like pundits, he said, she said, you don't get that sense. But like, I haven't looked at 10-year break-evens for a little while, but they're like 2%, maybe a little over 2%. They're low. A point this forecaster made was, you know, if you look back to the 70s, which is the classic American inflation story, uh, something like 80% of workers had cost of living allowances built into their contracts, built into their work, right? So, so then what you start to see is if there's 5% inflation, they get a 5% raise, and then their employer raises prices 5%. And so that locks in this wage price spiral where it keeps going and going and going. We don't have that now, right? Most workers don't have like a CPI adjustment built into their contract. And therefore, it makes it less likely that inflation is going to just take off. Yeah, so, so when you were saying that idea of expectations cause inflation, made me, made me think back to the colonial pipeline thing where expectations of gas shortages created gas shortages. You know, maybe you're seeing that happen in, in, well, there is kind of a little bit of a structural shortage in the housing market, but there are these expectations that there's going to be a lot of bidding going on um, in housing. You know, what do you make of, of what we're seeing in housing? Well, I just, uh, I'm in contract to buy a house. So, uh, you know, I congratulations or condolences. I, yeah, you, you I mean, we don't know in, in six months, have me back on the show and we'll know whether it's congratulations or condolences. Right. I and it's funny because I am like cheap, you know, like I shop. I like a deal. If I'm going to buy something online, I see if there's a promo code. And here I am making by far the biggest purchase of my life at a moment when I'm definitely not getting a deal. Right. So um, it's. Uh, it's a little scary. You know, clearly low interest rates are part of what's propping up home prices. Uh, it's amazing how low interest rates are, right? I, the apartment I live in now, I bought eight years ago and I it's like, I can't believe it. I'm going to lock in this rate for 30 years because it's never going to be this low again. It was 3.75. And on this house I'm buying now, it's like two, 2.9 or something. No points. And so, uh, you know, obviously, the lower the interest rate, the more house you can afford. That's part of it. 
the shortages, I think, are, are part of the like reopening hiccup. I think they're going to be transitory. I don't know. You know, one thing people in housing talk a lot about is uh, demographic tailwinds, right? Millennials waited a long time to buy houses. Uh, it's also the case that home builders were super chastened by the by the financial crisis and the housing bust, and so they were very slow to add supply, right? So um, it seems my hope, my motivated reasoning based on the fact that I just bought a house is like we're not. This is not some like 2006 bubble. It's just sort of everybody catching up and that, you know, home prices aren't going to keep going up as fast as they're going up, but it doesn't seem like a crash is imminent, knock wood. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, this is actually a sector that that I've, I follow really closely and Nick does too, maybe to a lesser degree. But everything you said lines up looking from the investing side, we're looking at basically a decade where builders did not build entry-level housing. Entry-level housing is also where the demand is from those millennials so many of whom were coming out of college or even just going into college in the worst economic crisis in the past century almost. And here we are today with this massive tailwind of demographics trend that's pushing, the, you have the buyers, right? So you have the demand and then there is just such weak, weak supply. So I think, I think you're right, but it's interesting. You mentioned- That's you mentioned encouraging. The, Let me just say, thank you for saying that. It makes me rest a little easier. Yeah, well, well I'm, I'm glad. And of course that means since I'm a stock jockey, I'm probably gonna be <laughs> 50-50 on whether or not it proves to be true. Okay. Um, but Maybe I do 51. Think, Let me, I think you're 51% <laughs> likely perfect. to be right. Yeah. Perfect. But the affordability thing, I think, is an important thing you talked about, right? Because you think about the, the tension between interest rates and affordability, particularly with housing. There's nothing else that that affects more in terms of when people make the decision. Because at the end of the day, people are looking at the payment, right? They're looking at how much it's going to cost compared to renting. Um, is that's, that's the calculus that people do. And I'm not sure how much time you spend looking at interest rates, but I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts, thinking about inflation, thinking about the federal deficit, money supply, all of those things that are tied together. And there's a lot of tensions between that and interest rates. Is that is that an area you'd like to talk about for a minute? Oh, yeah. I mean, so so the Fed, I mean, you didn't say the Fed in that sentence, but I feel like the Fed is sort of the center of a lot of that, right? Yeah, right. And I will say it's striking to me that the Fed is still buying billions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities every month, right? Mm -hmm. that, that which they started doing during the crisis. And like, that seems weird to me at a moment when home prices are rising by, you know, 10% or more year over year. But set that aside, uh, clearly the Fed is very committed to keeping a super accommodative monetary policy, right? To keeping interest rates super low. And I think part of that, I mean, if you look at the longer arc, right? Look at the last 10 or 15 years, you know, there was this moment that we sort of have forgotten now, but it's a really important moment in like 2019, say, right before the pandemic hit, where unemployment had gone down lower than anybody thought it could get, right? People had thought like, oh, 5% unemployment, that's full employment. When that happens, inflation's gonna start going up. And then it hit 5% and inflation didn't go up. So it kept going down and it got eventually to like 3.8%, it got to below 4% and inflation was still low. And when unemployment got that low, wages finally started going up, especially for people in the lower part of the income distribution, right? And so like, this is the magic of full employment, right? This is like market-based, you know, um, power for labor, right? I mean, there is this dynamic between labor and management and the lower unemployment is the more power, the more bargaining power workers have. And I think the Fed really saw that 
And, you know, they recognize that we're in this strange moment now where even though the economy is booming and um, inflation is high, it's also the case that we're like many million, six or seven million jobs in the hole, right? And so the Fed, I think, is going to keep interest rates low. They've said, basically, they're going to keep interest rates low until we get those jobs back, right? And they're going to, they're committed to this idea that this inflation is weird and transitory. And I think they can hold that position, certainly for many months to come, um, assuming inflation doesn't just go bananas, right? Yeah, so I think we, we spent a lot of time here kind of zoomed in on the, the cryptocurrency, inflation, the Fed, these trends we're seeing in housing. Want to maybe zoom out, think about the future here, where, where are things going? We just came out of Listen, they're going to write books about what, what just happened in the past year with the pandemic. This is a moment in history that is that is going to be you know changing in the way the Great Depression was changing and, and things like that. How do you think finance or, or money or, or the, our relationship with it has changed in this past year in a way that, that is going to be fundamentally different going forward or will be in those books that we read in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing I think of when you ask that is how much money the federal government borrowed and spent largely by just giving it to people, right? To me, in terms of sort of macro finance, the fact that the government in a pretty much non-controversial way, in a, in a bipartisan way, which is extraordinary in this very partisan moment, borrowed trillions of dollars and then just sent it in the form of checks to people, right? Like that's wild. Like that hasn't happened before. And it, it has, you know, that kind of spending on that magnitude hasn't happened in decades. And it was, and it just happened. And it like, it basically worked, right? Like uh, it reduced suffering and uh, the deficit went up. And at least so far, inflation has stayed low. So to me, that is like the potentially like the signal shift. The other thing that is really striking to me, and not just to me, to anybody who's paying attention, I think is how, um, well, how resilient the economy was for one, right? If you go back to last spring, it felt like we were all about to die and there was gonna be a great depression, right? And I think the roots of a lot of the shortages right now go back to that moment, right? Automakers were like, oh my God, nobody's gonna buy cars. So we don't need to buy uh, microchips because we're not gonna make the cars. And, uh, uh, you know, The global stores. supply chain basically shut down. Shut down, shut down because everybody thought everybody was gonna stop buying stuff. Right? right. And and so they canceled their orders and that didn't happen. And similarly, uh, asset prices just came roaring back. Right. Uh, and when you talk about zooming out and think like, OK, when we look back at this era, what what is going to be striking? Like the sort of everything boom is is weird. Right. Like everything is not going to boom forever. And that seems like part of the crypto story, right? To return to crypto. I mean, obviously the stock market is booming, but crypto too, it seems like there's just all this money looking for returns, right? And that that is a huge story that it's like the water we're swimming in. Right, right. Particularly you think about what's going on in so many other developed countries with negative interest rates, right? So it's it's hyper, this hyper market that we have in so many ways. And all just so much money, right? I mean, there's the loose monetary policy. <laughs> Literally so much money. So much money. I mean, if you want to really geek out, like I was looking at, uh, well, the Fed's reverse repo program. That might be a bridge too far, but basically like, you know, 
it's this thing the Fed does to put a floor on interest rates. When banks like literally have more money than they know what to do with, the Fed is like, okay, we'll borrow from you, the banks, overnight because you don't know what else to do with your money. They do that to put a floor on interest rates. But like that is upside down, right? The Fed is the lender of last resort. Typically, it's what we think of. In this instance, they're the borrower of last resort. It's like there's so much money, banks don't know what to do with it. Like, that's weird. Yeah. So I've got your book title, right? Uh, so, you know, we're, it's the water in which we swim. We're swimming in money. Yeah. Welcome to the Scrooge McDuck era. Okay. I'm ready for the gold coin bath. The crypto bath. That, 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 might, be, that might be less painful than diving into a giant <laughs> pile of, of gold. Yes, although what is a crypto bath, right? It doesn't exist, but it's worth a lot. There it's go, a man. virtual sculpture. They do an NFT, like NFT of my bathtub. There you go. I, I think I think I don't think we could close it with a finer description of, of what's happened over the past six months. Jacob Goldstein, thank you so much for coming back on and talking with us. Oh, it was so fun. I hope we can come back in another six months and talk about uh, whether my house was a good or a bad call. Can't wait. Yeah, me, me too. I think there's probably going to be a lot of other things that will have happened over that period to talk about. Again, Jacob Goldstein, NPR's Planet Money podcast host, author of, I'm going to say it again, one of my favorite books that I've read over the past year, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Go find it at your favorite bookseller and buy it today. Jacob Goldstein, again, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's really fun. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.